Pod here. Today I'm joined by Steve Keyes, who is the president of IFS for Asia Pacific, the Middle East and Africa. In this wide ranging conversation, we discussed the transition from moving as a leader in the UK to Australia and then to leading organizations across different regions. We look at the differences between being a CEO in one country versus being a group CEO or indeed a regional based leader. We also discussed the burdens of leadership, the physicality impact it can have and how when under stress, it can lead to negative behaviors and a poor attitude and what the leader needs to do to shift that. Lastly, we discussed the IFS Foundation that Steve leads on behalf of the wider organization. IFS has a third of its global staff based in Sri Lanka, and we discussed the impact the organization is having by supporting the communities in Sri Lanka. In full transparency, yours truly is the executive coach that Steve refers to in the beginning of this interview, but don't let that distract you. Hit it! Okay, now, from the beginning, you will never surrender. I was trying to emulate an idea about what I thought leadership should be. And, and I was looking at kind of people around me and thinking, oh, I should be like that, be like that. I think I was much more easily influenceable. Once I'd reconnected, got very centered about who I am, my value system, it really enabled me to present much more effectively as a human being, first and foremost, but, but yeah, as a leader. Welcome to The Leadership Diet. I interview leaders and experts about ways to optimize leadership. What are useful habits and thinking patterns? What are the secrets to high-performing teams? And how do they continue to nurture their effectiveness day after day? In other words, what is their leadership diet? Welcome, Steve, to this episode of The Leadership Diet. So great to have you here, and um, thank you for joining us from Singapore. Thank you very much for inviting me along. COVID, of course, is uh, keeping your locations to uh, Sydney and Singapore as opposed to all your usual ones. Steve is a president for Asia Pac, Middle East and Africa. So I'd imagine right now your, your travel is pretty limited, Steve. Yes, my carbon footprint is 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 looking far healthier these days. <laughs> I suspect <laughs> your freaking fly pores might be decreasing, but your carbon footprint is also uh, following the same route. They keep emailing me saying that it's okay. My my frequent fly status is being like rolled over for another goodness knows how many months or years. But uh, yeah, yeah, it feels good not to be flying quite so much. I bet. So, Steve, there's, there's so many topics I want to talk to you about, particularly the IFS Foundation, which is the one of the charity arms of IFS that you are responsible for as leading from an executive perspective. But before we jump there, I want to take you right back to when you've left England. Your voice has already given it away. You're, you're an Englishman. You left England for the first time and moved to, I think it was Australia, in fact, for a Primavera. And uh, I'm interested in your first expat role. And uh, looking back then, some of the leadership learnings and maybe even mistakes you made in, in your first time as an expat leader. I came to Australia in August 2003, just in time to watch England win the World Cup, in case you've forgotten that. <laughs> I don't think we did. <laughs> no, yeah. I've always had an idea of wanting to, to, to live and work overseas. I, I learned French and German when I was younger at school and stuff and always kind of wanted to, to leverage language. I just had a fascination with, with, with traveling. When I was given the opportunity to relocate with work, uh, it was a strange experience sitting there at, uh, at London Heathrow. And uh, I, I don't remember ever feeling so small before. Uh, it was a very, very strange sensation of just being just kind of, it's me, my wife at the time and, and, uh, and my, my eldest boy then, but there was only, there was only one of him around. The other one came along while we were in Australia. And, and yeah, we just all felt very, very small in this big old world. You know, settled into a job. So I, I'd, I'd left, uh, I was running an, an international channel sales business for an American software company and then joined a private organization, a private Australian organization to run their business uh, here in Australia. And what were the first few months like for you in that regard? 
terrifying at first. Terrifying, yeah. It's very interesting, you know, so so the expat experience, we were first of all well looked after, I have to say, there was a third party organisation that managed our transition, helped out with visas, we had somewhere safe to stay for the first few weeks, they took us out to to look at different areas to find somewhere to live on a more permanent basis, you know, they even took us around supermarkets to kind of point out how things are, you know, same but different, all those types of things, get bank accounts set up, all that kind of stuff, so that that was fantastic, incredibly useful tool. I think it was, for me, easier because I could throw myself into work and I could immediately make connections through work. And there was a sense of the relationship's a formal working relationship and you know you're going to be there for a couple of years. So you're going to invest social capital. One of the problems I think my wife subsequently divorced, one of the, one of the things my wife at the time found really difficult was building relations. And I think because we were originally on a 457 visa, you know, we ended up becoming permanent residents and, and, and then became citizens. But, but, but then on a 457 visa, a lot of people, you know, were okay to say hello and were okay to kind of get to know you a little bit kind of socially, but they weren't really prepared to invest social capital because a lot of people are there for two years and they move on to another role. Yeah. So they weren't too sure about us. And I think that would have been very hard for her. For those people who don't know, a 457 visa is the a visa in Australia that's used to sponsor corporate leaders coming from other countries into Australia to work for a, for a finite period of time. And the spouse is, is, is part of the visa. When the work finishes, the visa finishes, therefore they have to leave the country, hence the, the notion of transition. Yep. And you're, you're absolutely right, Steve. Uh, um, as you know, I've written a lot of books on, on expat transitions and, and one of the key hardships, I suppose, if you want to call it that, or the difficulties with expat roles is uh, how does the spouse fit into a community, particularly when they know, as you said, they might be leaving the community two or three years later. And Australia is one of those areas that doesn't have overt expat communities. Like Singapore obviously has a very strong expat community and it's very visible. Australia doesn't. So yeah, the families often find the transition more difficult. You move from an international sales channel role into a sales leadership or commercial leadership role. And therefore, part of your skill set is, is, is going out, meeting people, setting up commercial relationships. So I would imagine for you, setting up relationships of any kind was relatively easier given your, your whole skill set. That part was straightforward. And, and I think in general, my observation of the Australian business community is, is, is quite an open one. Now, I've worked in Britain for a number of years. There is a dominant class structure still. You get a bit of that in Melbourne. <laughs> they the Collins Street Mafia and all that good stuff. So there's a bit more of the old boys network from different schools. But in Sydney, generally, no. And largely, you know, broadly speaking, across Australia, it's, it's, I found it quite refreshing. I'm prepared to work hard. I'm prepared to put in the hours. And, and I'm prepared to just pick up the phone. And, and I found that if I picked up the phone, I could get through to people. They'd give me half an hour of their time. And quite refreshingly, you know, if they liked what I was saying, they'd introduce me to someone else and the conversation would, would, would move on. And equally, if they didn't, they'd be quite upfront. No, don't need that. Thank you very much. Bye. You know, and it's like, okay, I respect that. Yeah. That for me was, uh, was a real positive about that transition to Australia. Quite refreshing. Great. I think when I first met you, you, you had, you had left that original company. You joined a German enterprise company and your role was the senior vice president for Asia, Pacific and Japan. Yes. So you, you'd moved into, into a, into a bigger role commercially, obviously multiple markets. It was your first time covering multiple markets where you were responsible for the, for the PNL, et cetera. What was that transition like? Well, you and I met 
I joined Software AG in 2006. So I joined there in 2006. I ran Australia for three years. I was invited to step up to run the services business for a further three years across Asia, Pacific, Japan. And yeah, just as, as, as you and I met, and I have to give credit to my manager at the time, was aware of that transition, that impending transition for me to actually step up to then run the whole commercial operation across Asia, Pacific, Japan, Middle East. And he recognized that I would need support, maybe in a way that he wasn't able to provide because it was an incredibly busy role himself. So he gave me the opportunity to find an executive coach. It was a very interesting experience for me to go through that exercise of uh, identifying a, a, a coach that, right. that we could work with, having these strange interviews of people coming into the office you know, every couple of days. And uh, uh, I don't know, maybe there was half a dozen of them. And, and, and one rocked up and, and you know, asked me what color I felt like today and did I want to hug and look. Like, no, not particularly. Uh, another one kind of came in and said, so uh, how do you think I can help you? Because I think I can help you in the following ways. And, and, and then proceeded to tell me exactly how to do my job. Uh, and there was a whole bunch of very strange and different experiences. And then you came in and just started asking candid, direct, challenging questions. But you did so in a way that for me, at least, created a sense of psychological safety. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I never, whilst I felt the questions were challenging, I never felt that they were, you know, invasive or, or, or aggressive. They were well-intentioned. I could, I could really sense that um, from our early interactions. And that gave me the confidence to kind of open up and talk about some of the things that were really going on. You didn't promise any hard answers at that time. You said, well, that, that's a journey I think that's worth exploring. I'd like to suggest that we at least cover on these particular topics. I think there's more that we could we could explore there, and there's some there's some interesting ideas that we could we could touch on. And I think you shared with me a couple of ideas in the form of some some articles, and that whole sense of you know evidence based mutual learning, going through a kind of data gathering exercise, and then going on a journey together, like a kind of a form of guided self discovery, for want a better perspective. I needed that. I, I was about to step up into a pretty senior role. I was going to step onto the group executive board at the time mm-hmm. in taking on that new role. And I felt, well, maybe I didn't realize it at the time, but certainly my manager at the time clearly felt that I was badly under, <laughs> underprepared. <laughs> I wasn't ready. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I really think you need this. Um, yeah. But, you know, and, and uh, yeah, so it was, it was incredibly useful. That was an important part of my, of my transition into, into a proper leadership role. Do you remember when you look back now on the, you know, the, the, as you started realizing this is a bigger role, it's requiring me to step up. Like what did step up mean for you? Step into what? What is it different ways of being, different ways of thinking, different levels of doing? What was it for you? Well, you know, I certainly feel like prior to that moment, I had always labored under the opinion that I was supposed to have all the answers, that if I was the leader or the manager that somehow I'm the one that's responsible for providing all the answers. I had to be the smartest guy in the room. I had to, to lead at all times by providing the answers, being, the, being always right, being always there, always present. There was one particular time you know, when I first stepped into that leadership role, a new leadership role, stepping up to the group executive board, and just the sheer volume of work that came down, <laughs> and I was letting it all come onto me from above, and I, was, and I was trying to deal with all the issues that were coming up from underneath me, and it just was overwhelming. There's just the sheer volume and that sense of you know, everything was, I was, I was probably micromanaging. I was, I was, it was highly centralized decision-making, just really just relying on my, myself. And I remember at least one clear experience. We were just there at McMahon's Point, uh, walking down Blues Point Road. I had to get out of the office. I could feel my heart rate going. I could feel I was feeling really hot and, and, and very stressed in the office. 
And so I went for a walk and yeah, the heart rate just kicking off and, and just trying to breathe normally and, and wondering what the heck was going on. And that, mm-hmm. that sense of just a crushing weight on my shoulders and a realization I just simply cannot continue in that way. I cannot continue to think that I can take all of that on myself and continue to be successful. That to me was a, was a, was a pretty uncomfortable moment, but an important one to, to then ultimately transition to a, to a different way of thinking. Let's just clarify, you're a very fit, healthy man. You're a very active um, athlete. So the crushing sense of physicality you felt wasn't a cardiac type event. It was a stress-related pressure on myself, the way I'm thinking event. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I was a lot fitter then. Um, <laughs> Weren't we all, Steve? But you know, I was. I was doing doing the events. I'm proud. We did the uh, yeah, did the Hawksby Classic kayak event, and was doing ultra marathons and all sorts of things. And yeah, there's nothing wrong fitness wise, but yes, an, an emotional stress, a, a, a burden, and that rate was it was entirely stress related. That the heaviness of that sense of responsibility and obligation, um, it was crushing mm-hmm. and 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 suddenly this this sense of i can't possibly can't possibly continue in that way and since then i've looked back and and I, and I realized that moment was a very important one there's a there's a wonderful quote and only when things look bleak do people get around to getting things done right that, that sometimes you have to really for people to change or for there to be any form of change within an individual and organization level you have to understand the consequences of doing nothing yeah. and to realize that 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 consequence is something that's so very very bad that you are compelled to think radically about how you might address your situation it it creates a sense of crisis and the only real response to a crisis is is radical thinking i was sitting there kind of feeling that crushing weight and it was like okay, the consequences of me continuing to, to function the way that I am, that that's, that is not going to be good for me. You know, I'm likely to have some kind of physical problem. I'm certainly likely to have some, some severe mental you know, health issues you know, as a result of this. I was really beginning to feel that. And it presented as a form of crisis. The only logical response to crisis is radical thinking. It forced me to, to pivot my thinking almost immediately. Before we jump into how you, how you developed and moved into a different way of thinking, if you're able to remember now, what were some of the impacts of your leadership at that point in time? I, you under stress, you under burden. How was that showing up to your team or to, to the folks around you? Uh, wow, that's a bit. <laughs> I'm obviously proud of that. But uh, how is it presenting? Uh, angry, definitely angry, definitely arrogant. I think mm. I was I was perceived as quite arrogant. I had a nickname. <laughs> I only learned about a few years later called uh, The Killer. The Killer. In, in German, the German word for The Killer. Yeah, uh, yeah two quarters. And, uh, you know, that's it. Once you're in the, once you're in the, uh, in the bad, but that's it. You know, so don't get the wrong side of him. So can you imagine? You know, you think about how that affects other people then. Yeah. Don't get on the wrong side of him. Well, then you're not, they're not going to say things that challenge you. That if, even if you're plainly doing something wrong, no one's going to tell you, are they? There's another word that you and I have discussed over time. Indeed, we've laughed many times at this notion, but there's a word that was around you in that period, and I've never heard it since. It's called shitogram. What is that? <laughs> yeah, 
a shittogram is, uh, is is a little bit like if you've ever watched old uh, Division One football from England in the 70s and uh, you see some of the defenders, the way they tackle, and they go in very, very hard. And there's a phrase he used, which is when you leave something in the tackle, you get the ball, but you definitely, definitely let the other player know that they've just been tackled. So it's up a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So it's it's hard and it's firm. And it, yeah, it, it, it leaves someone know. And so a shittogram is... Uh, <laughs> Is it is an email that's you know heavily laden, dripping with sarcasm uh, <laughs> or spite, uh, or you know it delivers a message and a lesson, and it comes with a really really big giant slap. Uh, <laughs> it hurts. Yeah, it hurts, and it's designed to hurt. And boy, it feels good when you write them, and you get all of that anger and stress and frustration out, and all those types of things. And it's it's um it's blame culture at its worst, right? It's just it's it's just terrible. It's just terrible. I used to be very good at them, and, and sometimes <laughs> I I confess I still write them, and but then I've learned to I've learned to just stick them in draft and then delete them. Very good. <laughs> yeah, they don't serve any good. The learning there is to shift your perspective from from the blame culture piece, from always wanting to blame others. If something's gone wrong, though, the reality is that in some way, shape, or form, you as a leader haven't done something right. And so now I try to shift my perspective from being a blamer to a curious problem solver. What is it that I didn't articulate properly? How is it that I failed to support that individual and what they were trying to do? How else could I have addressed the situation? There's a million questions I would want to ask of myself first before then seeking to ask questions. Great. So you found yourself in this moment, you're walking down Blues Point Road, in, which is part of Sydney. You felt this crushing weight of, I've got to do something different. You moved from, well, you shifted your thinking, as you said, you, you, you shifted your thinking quite radically. To what? And what was the impact? Yeah, there was that realisation that I didn't want to be that thing anymore, that I couldn't inhabit that space anymore, that this sense of trying to take it all of myself, it, it just wasn't going to work. I wasn't going to be able to be successful. And being successful kind of mattered a great deal to me at that time. Of course, it still does. You want to, you want to, you want to deliver results, but in it maybe in a different way. We'll talk about that later. Was it you that talked about the U2 thing? When they, before they make an album, they go and listen to a whole bunch of music and then decide what they don't want it to sound like. I think and if that's they're right. not going to sound like this, then then they turn and say, if it's not that, then you turn and you say what you're going to do. And it was the same, the same thing in that moment. It's like, if I don't want to inhabit this space, what space do I, do I want to have? What do I, what do I turn to? And I think in very simple terms, it was a sense of, okay, accepting the vulnerability of saying, I don't know. Accepting vulnerability as a form of leadership and saying, I don't know. I don't have all the answers. I don't know how I'm going to get there. And actually, I am prepared to let people know that that's how I'm feeling and ask for their help. That was, <laughs> it was very, very difficult to, to acknowledge that at the time when I'd had such a fixed view about leadership and my own role and what I was supposed to be doing. But it was a profound moment in terms of creating the opportunity for the team to, to emerge, for a leadership team to emerge, to bring people around me that, that, could, that could help, that can contribute. That word vulnerability, that sense of, by saying I don't know, it's also acknowledging my, my willingness to learn. The reaction from people around me was really interesting. At first it was like, okay, you know, 
who are you? What have you done with Stephen? You know, where's the killer? Yeah, right. You know, so so where's you know, and, and where's the you know, where's the punch? Kind of people are ducking and weaving, waiting for it, and and and, and actually, I, I would have to say, and it's no, no fault of the organisation that I was I was working for. Ultimately, for me to fully present as a leader in the way that I realised I now had to, ultimately led to me leaving that organisation for a whole bunch of reasons. Not least you kind of suddenly start establishing a new set of values that, yeah. were, that were more grounded to who I felt I really was and who I really am. And then it, it was very difficult for some people to be able to adapt to that around me. They were so used to me. I'd been with that organisation for eight and a half years. And then for the last year and a half of that, suddenly presenting in a very different way was difficult. It was difficult for me also to inhabit that space because a lot of people just expected the same things of me. And so a lot of, lot of friction points. That's actually a really interesting point you, 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 you raised there, Steve. And I've seen this happen many, many times when a leader is overtly trying to change the way they think, change their attitude, change their belief patterns, and therefore change their behaviors. The system around them is so used to a particular way, either because the system has that or indeed they're used to the leader being like that. The system often prevents it happening. Yeah, it can do. And the leader eventually has to recognize that if I truly want to shift this, I may have to change role. Sometimes that's within the same organization. Sometimes, as in your case, it's leaving the organization. But I, I, need to, I need to start afresh. The beauty about changing your role is even if you're in the same organization, you might move geography, you have the ability to rewrite yourself. You have the ability to reauthor yourself from day one, as opposed to trying to change the, the script in, in hindsight. Yeah. I mean, we did some cool things. If you, if you remember, we, we were working together during that time and, and we'd introduce some tools and processes to, to, to help build trust within that leadership team. I said that was, that was one thing. Trust was at an all-time low. No one trusted anyone. That was a reflection of my behavior. Mm-hmm. And so we started with that idea, didn't we, about that, that, that sense of not, not trusting each other completely, just trusting each other enough, enough to have a different type of conversation. Yeah. Enough trust. Very powerful idea. I've, I've used that a few times just to have the necessary heartfelt conversation that would enable us to talk about difficult, sensitive topics. Remember that workshop we did at the Q station? I do. A couple of people trying those questions out and, uh, and I, I found that very hard. I'd walk away, I'd get all angry, I'd go to the back of the room, I'd pace around and I really want to just get mad now. But okay, they're demonstrating vulnerability and I have to reciprocate and let's, let's you know, I, you know and that was really quite some powerful moments. And, and so we did... I think, by and large, we took that as far as we could within the constraints of that organization. But yes, to your point, sometimes systemically an organization is set up to want certain things and certain outcomes. And, uh, and it, yeah, it got to the point where I felt like, you know, through that process of self-discovery that I've been on through, through working together with you, you know, I'd, I say it is a self process of self-discovery, kind of reconnected to a sense of who I really am mm-hmm. through a series of quite profound questions and, and challenging questions that, that you'd raised. I think one that you asked me was what parts of me haven't met before. Mm-hmm. I remember that that was something that really, really connected with me. I think, as you know, I, I play music in my, in my spare time. I play the guitar badly. I write songs occasionally, uh, but that creative part is like very, that's my personal life. And, and I never brought any of that into my professional life. And so you talked about that. How about I could bring more of that discipline that I was applying to my professional work into my creative life and make a much harder, firmer commitment to that in terms of practicing, rehearsing and getting better at it. And then also bringing some of that creativity into my, into my professional life. And what would that, what would that mean? What would, what would happen? Well, what happened was I became a lot more grounded 
and centered as an individual. I no longer had two identities. I, I was just me. <laughs> and that in itself was a, a great unburdening, you know, of, of that. And, and, and I was able to just be me. And there was none of those. So, so far fewer of those stresses and strains. I, you asked the question before about how, how did it manifest itself. Before then, I remember not only was I angry at work, I was also very angry at home. Mm-hmm. And I remember very, very difficult transitioning from a work environment back to a home environment. Certain patterns and behaviors I look back on now, I'm kind of ashamed of. But, uh, you know, once I realized and kind of reconnected in that way, suddenly, well, very centered around who I am. I've got a clear value system and it became so much more easy to operate in all aspects of my life because it's just me. That's really important, the ability to ask, you know, beautiful questions that, that shape our identity as much, was that quite as, as much in the asking as in, as in the answering, right? You know, that, that, that is a really important part of the coaching process, I think. Well, yeah, I think you and I both enjoy poetry in general, but particularly David White, uh, who is uh, from Yorkshire and from Ireland. And uh, uh, I, th- I think I would have stolen that, that quote from him when I asked you about what parts of you haven't met yet. I suspect that's one of his lines. <laughs> I think it is. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> hopefully I did uh, give him the uh, the reference at the time, but I suspect I didn't. <laughs> it's a really profound and simple question that he raises and that you explored, which is if there's parts of you that you love, how come it doesn't, how come you don't integrate that? And and it sounds yeah. like the way you, you talked about it, there was a, a degree of anger uh, you were holding because you weren't quite getting to where you wanted to get despite the level of energy you were putting into it and you were racing faster and faster and yet was getting more and more out of sight for you. And once you learn to stop and pause and actually go, hold on, I, I can do this differently and I can enjoy my music and I can enjoy my creativity and I can bring in uh, community service into my life as well. It doesn't, I'm not, I'm not separating them. I'm, I'm actually integrating them. If I think about the time, you know, when I was first in that role, I was, I was going through that stress, for sure, I was trying to emulate an idea about what I thought leadership should be. Mm-hmm. And, and I was looking at kind of people around me and thinking, oh, I should be like that and be like that. I think I was much more easily influenceable. And I think that probably manifested itself as well in the workplace. People looking and go, one day I'll be like this, next day like that. And, and yeah, not really grounded. I think people pick up on that. One side... Set it, reconnected, got very centered about who I am, my value system. It really enabled me to present much more effectively as a human being, first and foremost. But, but yeah, as a leader, you know, I don't always get that right, but I've tried to keep that idea very close to me as, as I've moved forward in, in, in subsequent roles. And, and it's proved to be just a gift that keeps on giving. Mm. You know, it's, it's, it's a wonderful thing now. I feel much more connected with the people around me. And, and there's a much broader degree of trust there because people know that I'm, I'm consistent in my behaviors and my attitude and my outlook and they understand who I am, the good and the bad, and, and, and they really appreciate that. That creates a sense of psychological safety. That's a, that's a key idea, a sense of psychological safety where people know, they feel trust, they, enough trust passes between us that enables them to share ideas, to be wrong, to mm-hmm. admit failures, mm-hmm. to, to, to be able to contribute, to learn, to show their own vulnerability, and for us to therefore work together as a true leadership team to get stuff done. That's uh, not only more rewarding, it's a lot more fun as well. And liberating. It allows people a place to, yeah. to, 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 uh, to experiment and to play and, and to, to not, yes. uh, not, not live uh, waiting for you know, either nothing or a slap or whatever the, the reaction might be. Yeah, of course. We hope you're enjoying this episode of The Leadership Diet. Feel free to hit the subscribe button on whatever podcast player you are listening to this on. Reviews on iTunes and Spotify are greatly appreciated.
kind of move us to to a different conversation. You, you you ended up leaving that organization and you became the CEO of a privately owned organization in Australia where you eventually had to basically do a merger of, of uh, from memory, four or five different organizations into one. Uh, where you were, you were taking a, a range of, you're effectively the, the group CEO that sat across a range of different businesses. And in some senses, you play the role of a chair of a board, but actually as, as in, in the group CEO setting, uh, reporting to the, the, you know, the, the ownership structure. What's the difference as a group CEO when you have other CEOs reporting to you relative to when you are the person in charge? Like, how do you have to lead differently in, in that regard compared to other roles you've been in? It was a fascinating transition on a number of levels. First of all, it was the first time I've been, you know, CEO, right? So in, in the previous role, it was, okay, there was a regional leadership, but ultimately reporting into a group executive board. So some, some aspects of vision and strategy were established collectively, or I know I was asked to buy into that. So in, in this instance, a very different type of doing yeah. in that prior to me coming on board, the company was very much, uh, I would say almost a passive investor in these organizations. So yeah, it was a, uh, the company was a federated group of IT services businesses. The company had either a minority or majority stake in all of these different businesses. And so it was very much a passive supporter investor, sometimes, uh, you know, a bank guarantor type relationship, but, but not really having a meaningful input. And, you know, I, the reason to have joined that, that take that role on was this sense of, hey, we, we, might, we might actually be stronger together. We might be better off working and collaborating more closely together and, and, and leveraging our mutual strengths and, and the opportunities available to, to cross-sell and upsell and to, you know, and to consolidate some of the back office functions and all that kind of good stuff. So there were some huge efficiency dividends we were hoping to realize. But as you can imagine, each of these organizations, the CEOs of their respective organizations, were still part of the business. The founders, the owners that sold either a minority or majority share for different reasons. And, you know, they each had their own strong, clear sense of purpose and identity. So it was a challenging role, mm-hmm. right? Trying to, trying to create a new shared identity that was a broad enough church for everyone to feel like they could be a part of whilst also respecting their, it was like trying to form the European Union. And how did you go with that one? As well as the current yeah. one. As yeah, Europe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We have a few Brexiteers, that's for sure. Um, <laughs> Ultimately, over a three-year period, it was, it was it was a very successful process for you and the organization, but it wasn't all, it didn't feel like that the whole way through, I'm imagining. Where were some of the moments where you had to lean into leadership and, and, and really try and pull it through? Well, it's successful in some ways and, and, and not in others. Um, successful in that we established a, a group identity, successful in that we established core common systems, you know, that they did drive massive efficiency dividends and visibility and transparency through the organization. We got really clear about, you know, our purpose, industry specialization. It drove, you know, really good top and bottom line, you know, growth. So, you know, as a shareholder community, you know, there was, that was, that was, that was a great set of outcomes. I think it was just part of the journey. So I can look back on that three year period and say, okay, we achieved, we achieved quite a bit. There was so much more that I think could have been done. If I look back on that, I think there was a lot of good intent there to want to take that then to the next level and to potentially even list the thing and, and go on. But there is a phrase, and I don't mean it in a, in a negative way, that you perceive yourself based on your intentions and others perceive you on your behaviors. Yeah. 
And whilst I think there was a lot of good intent within that organization, the behaviors were still of a federated group of companies. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it did seem to ultimately suit everyone quite well. So I felt like I'd taken it as far as I could within the boundaries that that shareholder community had decided they set for themselves. Yeah. That was an interesting learning thing for me as well, actually, was this idea of was group CEO. But CEO, that doesn't empower you to make all the decisions. Yeah. You know, that's not, you know, there is a chairman, there is a board, there are, there are founders and shareholders, and there are different stakeholders that, that manifest themselves in lots of different ways. And, and ultimately, one has to acknowledge and take all those things into consideration. I had a very clear vision of what I hoped to achieve. And then, you know, had to make some, some, some compromises along the way to align everyone around a common set of goals and outcomes that everyone was prepared to sign up to. Within that context, we did some pretty cool things. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You always wish you could do more, but yeah, we, we had a good, we had a good journey. It was a diplomatic role. It was a, certainly a great learning opportunity for me to sit on lots of different boards mm-hmm. uh, to to learn about what makes a good board function mm-hmm. really well, and mm-hmm. and and where are there, <laughs> you know, where are there some 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 major issues that I think a lot of organisations can slip up on. Let's jump to that in, in a second. But there's a point you raised a few minutes ago that I think is really important. Just just underlining, and that is the perceived influence of the CEO role. Yes. You know, I would suggest that a lot of folks who actually have never been in the CEO role assume the CEO role has the ultimate power to get lots of stuff done. And clearly the role does enable lots of stuff to get done. But there's also one of the fallacies that the CEO role, just because the CEO wants something to happen, doesn't necessarily mean it will. And, and, and you, no. you, you've, you've given a great example there of, you know, you're in an organization that's set up, has got a structure, it's got a context, it's got shareholders, it's got multiple shareholders who are still in the, in the business. And you are able to bring it so far. And the context you're sitting in, rightly or wrongly, prevented it going further along the path that you had deemed to be the right path. And, and recognizing the CEO's limitations of influence, I think is really important when you're in that role. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think it, is, it really is. You know, it, it, you, are, you are accountable to the board. You know, the, the, a proper functioning board does set uh, strategy. There's a really interesting power play, isn't it? That the, a board is set up to represent the interests of the shareholders primarily, right? And as a CEO, you are both there to respond to the guidance that you are given from the board mm-hmm. to properly understand the shareholders you know, directional guidance and what, mm-hmm. and what they're expecting of you as a CEO. That's the framework within which you operate. But also, I think a good CEO challenges that board to acknowledge and respect the fact that there are many more stakeholders within an organization. A board is thinking almost traditionally, very almost exclusively about the needs of the shareholder community. As a CEO, you have an obligation, I would say, to make sure that the needs of the uh, employee community, the workforce, taken into consideration, stakeholders like the communities in which we operate. Mm-hmm. Gosh, you know, uh, customers, partners, a whole range of mm-hmm. other stakeholders that mm-hmm. whose, whose, I, whose needs I felt need to be met. That's an interesting dialogue. And ultimately, a direction is given, a framework is set, and the CEO operates within those very clear guidelines. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's not you know it's not you don't have the magic stick the whole time and you can wield you know limitless power that's for sure just as well. <laughs> well, exactly right, just as well. And, and indeed, uh, the modern COVID experience we're all going through has taught us that none of us have ultimate power. You know, the world can come along and shake you by your roots than you least expect it. You mentioned um, high performing boards or, or boards that are that can be functioning versus boards that haven't. Differentiate for us and um, the boards that were more effective or what boards can do to be more effective than the ones that are less helpful. I think a lot of the role I'm 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 now more in I used to 
not sitting on uh, so many boards, or rather when I was on the group executive board of, of, the, of the German enterprise software company, I undervalued the importance of the role of the chairman. Mm-hmm. I didn't necessarily understand how important that, that, that role it would, really was. Having sat, because we were a federated group of companies, I sat on you know, six or seven different boards. Yeah. The difference in, in, in board performance often depended on the strength of the chairman. The strength meaning what? As in the ability to, the strength of the board as a whole in terms of being able to make clear decisions in a timely and effective fashion, to be able to acknowledge and openly talk about particular topics and issues, to understand and to qualify risk, to be able to talk about fundamental issues that relate to the kind of health and well-being of the organization. Mm-hmm. In some boards, it was very operational, you know, and it kind of really stuck in the weeds. Right. In more effective boards, you, there was an elevated conversation. A lot of it related to me. Actually, the more successful boards, I found the actual board meetings themselves were merely the theatre of the engagement. Yeah. Right? That that yeah. actually, you know, you were just you were just gliding, you know, through the process. All the hard work happened outside and around that, mm-hmm. and it's a form of leadership. Yeah. Um, I, I think back to one, one one of the chairman in particular. He was incredibly good at getting information out there, getting topics out there, having individual conversations with, you know, with people, these short, intense, one-on-one conversations, bit of feedback, bit of guidance, and then bringing that back, you know, to the board at the appropriate time. If there was a particular topic, making sure that subcommittees were set up, making sure that they had a clear frame of reference within which they were supposed to operate. And then when people did try to do things during the actual formal board process, being very clear about the governance and, and about the processes and not letting the conversation get distracted. Mm-hmm. So being, um, what's your phrase? Firm, friendly, and fair. <laughs> yeah. you know, good chairman, chair people do that, do that very, very well. That was a huge learning process for me. And I remember taking a lot of notes during that time as much about board meetings themselves. The other thing that the good chairman did, assiduous note takers, yeah. assiduous note takers, everything doesn't matter what the formal note said. I remember going to one of, the, one of the, this guy's uh, house one evening, we, we, had, uh, we were having dinner together. I just saw all of, his, all of his notebooks all lined up. It was a chairman of the board of several companies, all on separate shelves, personal notes, dated. And, uh, and I asked him about it and he said, well, let's just use an example. And he pulled it out and he showed me the notes. And, and it was a, both the formality of what was happening and also informal remarks, he had a, he clearly divided on each page, formal remarks and informal remarks of the way that people were acting and behaving as much as what was being decided and discussed. Wow. And, and for him, that was his way of coaching and mentoring and, and, and ideation and also getting a check on the kind of health and well-being and how well is this board actually functioning. Mm-hmm. And then there are things that he needs to think about in terms mm-hmm. of improving the interaction of the board. What are we missing? Are we not getting enough challenging questions? Are we not, you know, it, it was a comprehensive process of, of observation and internal dialogue to help him be more effective as a, as a chairperson. I think it was fantastic. That's a, an extraordinary insight to someone who's able to manage the strategic conversation, manage the process and governance that a board needs to have, and yet take a helicopter view on what are the dynamics happening as they're happening and just be able to record it from memory. I mean, he's, he's, he's looking through his own lens, of course. So by nature, there's, there's a bias there, but he's recording the events so he can stimulate his yes. memory. Extraordinary. And it was very helpful. I mean, I, th- I guess, you know, he did say that he'd had one, one problem where someone had gone to a, to, to a legal process and he was chair of a particular board and, and he felt himself being a little bit undercooked yep. in terms of his, his, his personal memory. And, it, yep. and, he, and he decided never to let that happen again. 
And subsequent to that was a big learning for me. I'm now an assiduous note taker. I think not only when I'm sitting in board positions, but also just in in, in any kind of meeting. Yeah. I think it's really important. If one is going to provide, we talk about that that, that intense short one-on-one conversation, you have to have meaningful examples to share with an individual. Yeah. And I find that to be such so much more of a powerful process now. If I'm having short one-on-ones, I can refer back to specific things. Or at the end of each quarter, I might send out a short note to that individual and say, just wanted to thank you for what you've done. And instead of it being just like a, hey, we're all doing great, aren't we? It's like, I really appreciate it when you did this, you did this and this for these reasons. And I feel that you might be a lot more effective if you were able to do such and such and such. And again, back that up with examples of where I think that they might be able to improve. And I've had a lot of good feedback from people going, that they're just grateful that you've paid attention mm-hmm. <laughs> you know they, they they felt like i am aware and i am i'm actually you know witnessing them <laughs> uh and, and and their participation and and that makes people feel i don't know makes people feel good makes people feel connected that's an extraordinary contrast and i, and I don't want to bring you back to history again that's an extraordinary contrast to what you describe early on in terms of shittograms, in terms of the way you used to write those, and and the but the intention behind it is so different. The intention behind yes. this is to give clarity, to give feedback, to express gratitude, and to point to future direction in terms of here's something else that we could do together. The intention is to help. Yes, the intention is it is ultimately all about the team. If I reflect on the people that I've served, who I who I think was good leaders, they will do whatever it takes to help the team to be successful, both both collectively and individually. Those leaders don't really care about whether they get the credit or not. Those leaders are, are willing to to sacrifice and 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 do these little acts of service. Yeah. Uh, and and I and I think of that kind of note taking as an act of service for members of my leadership team. Yeah, to help them be the very best versions of themselves that they can. Right. And and in my own way to kind of coach and enable their personal development and success, and to be able to 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 celebrate that. I think that's a very very important part of of the leadership function. It's very different to to ten years ago, <laughs> fifteen years ago. <laughs> it was all about all about me. It was yeah. all about me then. Yeah. And whatever it took for me to be successful, and I'm just I'm just so over that as as an idea. I still care about the results, but I think I've got to the point through that process where if I can genuinely look at myself and say I've done everything I can, if I, if I work my socks off the way I do, I'm, I've got a strong work ethic. And if, I've, if I really put that into trying to help enable my team and support my team and help them to, to do as best as they can, and, and if we really feel like we've put in 100% of the effort, then I, I guess I can accept the results for what they are and not let that define me in the same way that I used to. It used to define me. I didn't used to sleep well at night and I used to think of myself as, as a failure if we didn't get quite the results I wanted to get. I don't think that's particularly healthy and I feel better for it now that I can kind of, you know, compartmentalize that a little bit. It still matters. Results still matter. Of course they do, but it doesn't define me in the same way. Let us move to, I think, what may be not defining you, but certainly adding to your definition of who you've become. You're now the president of APAC Middle East and Africa for IFS, IFS being a, a global organization listed on the Swedish stock market uh, in uh, in the software industry. Gartner referred to IFS as in the, in the 2020 Magic Quadrant for field service management, a uh, multiple award winning organization. Now you've been in software all your life, but you didn't necessarily join IFS because of software. You joined it for that and more. Did, did, did you want to talk us through yes. why, why you joined? Darren Ruse, who's the CEO, rang you, who of course you guys worked together before. He rang you with an opportunity that was more than just leadership 
Yeah. Wow. It was a really interesting conversation. So, so Darren and I did work together uh, quite a lot at Software AG and we kept in touch after, after we kind of, he, he left to join another organization and I, and I left, um, gosh, probably 15 months after that. We'd kept in touch whenever I was in England, we'd always catch up. And uh, he reached out to me. It was uh, April 2000. Gosh, I can't remember when it was. April 2018, I guess it was when he, when he called me. And we met up in Singapore. And I was quite curious because Darren and I were probably quite similar back in the back in the days that that the uh, the company we were both working at are both quite quite aggressive and ambitious and what kind of good stuff. I was very curious to see how he had evolved as a leader as well. He was taking his first it was his first CEO role. I know it was something that he craved. So I was very curious to see how the journey that he'd been on and and, and learn and and see how yeah how he developed and some of his ideas. I was I was really bowled away first of all with his sense of humility. You know, in taking on the role, he was clearly, you know, overall by that experience, was genuinely excited. And I asked him about what he saw as his learning opportunity from this role, and he was able to talk about it. Vulnerability, you know, <laughs> you know, was quite was quite comfortable with with that. I don't know these things. I'm really keen to learn. It's like, wow, okay, that that again, talk about psychological safety, made me feel comfortable to open up. Uh, he knew full well that I was in a CEO role, and I was I was enjoying it. He was inviting me to kind of, for want of a better term, step back into a, you know, a regional leadership role to look after APAC in Middle East and Africa, something I'd done before. So there wasn't necessarily the same kind of level of learning there. Of course, a different organization, different challenges. I knew it was a transformational growth story. A lot of the, the roles that I've been brought into have typically been, I mean, I don't typically get hired because everything's going really well. You know, <laughs> You're I, not a BAU guy. Uh, no, no. no. Uh, so, you know, I get brought in to drive transformational growth and to create that sense of, you know, that radical thinking in response to a crisis and, and, and drive transformational growth off the back of that, right? So, of course, we talked about that and some of those, some of those, uh, challenges and opportunities but he again you talk we talked earlier about this kind of sense of being witnessed of being noticed and and he said something quite that that, that connected you know, resonated with me he said i've noticed a lot about you know, in the last uh, five years with things that have been going on you've taken up more of an active involvement in in social activities i got involved in a bunch of community service projects right with um whether it was doing soccer refereeing whether it was uh, I think you're aware of this, right? So, so doing helping out a soup kitchen in Sydney or working with Streetwork, a, a great organisation that helps uh, helps kids in in Sydney that are in trouble with the law, doing a whole bunch of stuff like that. Kids giving back, and and he said, I know that I know that really means a lot to you. And I've been thinking about what kind of organisation I want to lead, and I want to lead an organisation that puts service at the heart of what it does. I want to be part of an organisation, want to lead an organisation that wants to help our customers provide better service to their customers, and I want to make sure that our technology is an enabler for that. And I want to think about how we can provide better service to our customers in everything that we do. And I want to be of better service to our staff. And I want to be of better service to the communities in which we operate. We have to do that. If we're going to be successful, if we're going to, if we're going to do all the things that I want to do, we have to service matters. It has to be at the very heart of everything that we do. And then he said, you know, when it comes to community service, he would love for me to lead that. Um, he could see how much it means to me. And he felt like that would be a really good learning opportunity. It would give me a, a platform to test out some ideas and, and to try something different and to lead something new. And, and of course, you know, like the synapses went off and it was like, that would be fantastic. So he had me at that moment, quite frankly. And, and so he's a very good he salesman as well. So, yeah, yeah. Hello, Steve, the charity guy. <laughs> yeah, good, yeah, good salesman, all right? Yeah. And, and, and he knew he knew what really mattered to me. But again, I felt noticed. I felt like he'd acknowledged who I am. And that meant something to me. 
So what does the IFS Foundation do or hope to do? Oh, wow. So, gosh, we are we are a Swedish organization. We started out life in Sweden. We're now a global company with a presence in over 60 countries around the world, about 4,000 employees. But a good third of them, 1,300 or so, are based in Sri Lanka. 22 years ago, the organization set up its research and development global support center in Sri Lanka. Very brave choice back then. There was a civil war going on at the time. Quite a far, far-reaching you know, idea. Could have chosen India, where we would have been a very small fish in a, in a very big pond with lots of other you know, organizations like looking for, for good talent. By coming into Sri Lanka, we were really able to set up something very, very different, um, a much, much safer environment. We've been going at it, as I say, for, for 22 years, 1,300 em- employees. IFS already had in place a scholarship program to help kids through through university. A lot of kids have the right skills, but don't necessarily have the money to, to, to fund their way through university. So IFS had this program in place where you would, instead of doing a degree over three years, you do it over five years. Uh, you would work part-time at IFS. You'd do your university degree part-time with pay all the funds. And at the end of it, you'd have a degree, work experience, and 80% of those kids went on to work with IFS. So fantastic. It was a little bit of a way of kind of giving something back to that community as well. And the starting point for the IFS Foundation was, okay, that's all well and good. We've got about 120 uh, students that have gone through that scholarship program so far, which is, which is awesome. But my starting point was, okay, to even get to the point where you could take advantage of that scholarship means a whole bunch of things have gone your way throughout your life. Yes. So let's go back. Let's, let's work backwards from that moment and figure out all the things that make a difference and that, make, that create the opportunity for a child to get to that point. And when you work backwards, you really get down to some fundamentals. Sanitation, you know, having proper sanitary facilities. It prevents disease. It enables girls to continue to attend school even when they reach puberty. Access to fresh water. It means that parents and kids don't have to spend hours walking to a, to a, to a source of fresh water and bringing that back. Uh, education infrastructure, health infrastructure, employment opportunities. Start looking at those, those fundaments and you say, okay, all right. So how can we how can we do that? So we went out and did a couple of field trips to, to Sri Lanka. We went out to some remote rural parts of, of, of the island. It's a beautiful country, peaceful, resilient, beautiful people. There's some endemic poverty issues, serious, serious problems when you step out in the major cities. So we decided to set up the IFS Foundation to to help break the poverty cycle in remote and rural parts of Sri Lanka. Why? As I say, it feels good to give something back to that particular community that serves us so well. Globally, as an organization, we rely on what we do in Sri Lanka every day to support our customers. So it enables us to say thank you. It's a cause that can unite our global community. We feel like we can make a profound difference, a really meaningful difference in what we hope will be a relatively short period of time and an idea that we feel that could, could last. Something that also that could unite our, potentially our customers and our partners and our, and our broader community as well. So, yeah, we've been running it for about, we, we set it up in May last year. We've raised, um, oh, the other important point, we didn't want it to be an IFS funded thing. Mm-hmm. Um, we, 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 although IFS has given money to it, I, I just didn't want it to be, oh, aren't we great? Cut a check. You know, yeah. there's that Dylan quote, isn't there? You know, s- send your checks to tax deductible charity organizations. Oh, sod that, no. Uh, so what we said was all funds had to be raised by staff. So everything we did had to be activities that our staff would undertake to raise the funds. Sausage sizzles, car wash days, golf events, quiz nights, um, gala dinners. We're doing a a virtual concert at the moment. Uh, We've got that set up for next week where we've got IFS employees that are going to come online and they're going to perform the piano or sing a song on the guitar. All over the world. 
all over the world, all over the world. So it's employees anywhere around the world, you know, in, in that particular event, but, but all sorts of events that we've done. We've raised over a quarter of a million dollars so far. Hmm. And that sense of doing it because it, it matters and getting people to really buy into it and really taking ownership for that, it, it just creates a sense of meaningful connection. Let's just put it that way. It, it goes beyond it being something that the organization says it must do and everyone goes, oh yeah, pay lip service, that's great. It becomes something that, that we collectively, I'll tell you the example, and this is going to sound like a very strange one. I read an article in The Economist, just as we were thinking about the ISS Foundation, and it was about the Swiss government was trying to figure out where it wanted to put a nuclear dump site in the, in the country. Mm-hmm. And they were doing this research about where would be the safest place. And they found two places where well, the safest possible place to dig a big hole, stick this stuff, cover it over, stable ground, stable rock, all that kind of stuff. Anyway, these two, these two social psychologists approached the government and said, before you make a decision, can we run a little experiment? And the experiment was this. They went to one village and said, right, guys, we've done this research. Here's the findings. Here's all the material. You know, it's near your village, about 30 kilometers away, and this other village, and we need to make a decision. If, if you're willing for it to be here, we'll pay you $10,000 per household for it to be there. So, you know, we, we think this is the best site. We acknowledge it's not great. We'll pay you $10,000, okay? With the other village, they gave all the same information, but they said, we want to do this. We think we should be putting it here because fundamentally we think it's the right thing to do. It's your decision, but we, we genuinely, genuinely believe this is the, this is the right place. We'd, we'd like you to make a decision, please. We'd, we'd really wel- welcome your input. The village where the money was offered rejected the idea overwhelmingly. Right. The village that was offered no money accepted it overwhelmingly. In other words, the idea of introducing money, the, the, the idea of kind of, you know, introducing some kind of financial recompense yeah. undermined the civic and moral worth yeah. of what they were trying to do. And so they rejected the idea. They felt dirty, like they weren't being told something. The, the village that said it is just part of your civic and moral duty went, okay, I completely buy into that and we will support that because it's the fundamentally the right thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's why we don't want IFS to be given the money. That's why we want our staff to give the money because otherwise it would undermine the civic and moral worth of what we're trying to do. And I know that's a kind of a, you know, a high level concept, but it's really important to me. No, no, no. I, I love so much about what you're saying here. And, and the word c- comes to mind more and more as you're talking is integration. I mean, at, at, a, at a personal level, as a leader for you, and we discussed this over the last half hour already, you've learned the last couple of years to bring different parts of you together. And then, you know, it just, it just becomes a bigger version of you. So we know you're a musician. So now you've got, you've got Steve Keats' version of Live Aid happening next week in terms of, of a global Lockdown concert. Live Aid. Yeah. Live Aid. <laughs> <laughs> but also you're, you're a big believer in buy-in, helping people to, to buy into something and then unleash their energy. And what you as an organization have done here through your leadership of the foundation is, you know, many organizations, thankfully, cut checks and give it. But that's pretty much it. You've gone, no, do you know what? We can actually probably do a whole lot more by getting everyone involved. And here's how you do so. And uh, the notion of psychology of money can be a motivator, but can also be a detractor when people feel it's the right thing to do. So stop rewarding me for what should be the right thing to do anyway. That's a far more integrated way of doing it. I, I, I love what you're doing here. And, and more importantly, I love the fact that you're so excited by it. It's palpable on the screen yeah. here down in Sydney. I can hear the energy coming through the airwaves. <laughs> <laughs> it's awesome. It's, you know, when you get people responding, when they've raised money and they write me an email, 
they let me know and, and they, they say they want it to go towards a particular project or they've raised it to try and achieve something and that tube well gets built and you and you get the photographs on site and, and the feedback loop that comes from that, that sense of ownership of that we're doing this as a collective, it's just, it, it, again, it goes to the heart of the idea of being of service to others. Particularly important at the moment, I guess, with, with the pandemic, you know, everyone's got, everyone's got issues going on. So it does afford us all a little bit of perspective as well. We try to do that. We also implement it at the same time of volunteer day because some people kind of said, okay, that's Sri Lanka, that's great, but what about my community? Fair. So we, we've given everyone an extra day of leave as well so that they can pursue social work in, the, in a project of their choice and in their community. And that, that's proven to be highly effective. Again, this idea of service matters, being of service to your community, the community that enables us to survive and thrive and, and continue to operate. It's wonderful to be able to be part of that and to facilitate and enable that as part of our kind of you know, cultural fabric. We're coming to the end of, of this interview and it feels to me like we, uh, we were, as soon as we hang up, we need to book in four more sessions because there's so much, <laughs> there's so much for us to talk about and, 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 and share across the interwebs. But I got two questions for you to, to bring this session to a close today. You mentioned lockdown live eight. <laughs> uh, I, I'm looking forward to the, uh, the DVD when that's released, wherever that's coming from. Spotify look out. Spotify look out. <laughs> I, I know you're, uh, if you're nothing, you're a music man. What would be your favorite song? Or band? Well, I think you know I'm a big Bob Dylan fan. And I think you know as well that uh, so I, I'm going to perform as part of our lockdown live, eh? I've heard that. Um, <laughs> so I'm, uh, I figured that I couldn't really ask others to do something I'm not prepared to do myself. So I'm, I'm going to sing To Make You Feel My Love uh, by, by Bob Dylan. And uh, I think it's, uh, it resonates with me as a song, I guess particularly now at this particular moment in time, I mean, everyone is feeling a lot of stress and pressure with the COVID-19 situation. And, it's, and it does manifest itself in many different ways in, in the workplace in particular. You know, for a start, you're not able to be as connected with people. There's those water cooler conversations aren't possible. We as leaders and as, and as, and as co-workers need to be a lot more mindful that perhaps everyone's got their own story and their own stresses that are going on in their background and their lives. And that might be affecting the way that they manifest themselves and, and behave at work. We need to perhaps be, have a little bit more empathy, a little bit more kindness and consideration for others uh, in the workplace at the moment. And, uh, and so for me, yeah, to make you feel my love, you know, when, when the rain is blowing in your face and the whole world is on your case, I could offer you a warm embrace. It seems to be particularly pertinent in these times. And the last question, which is, is the one I ask everybody in, in this particular uh, podcast, and that is now given all the experience you've gleaned and uh, some of the wisdom you've cultivated over the last 20 years, what would you tell the 35-year-old version of you today? Uh, I saw that in the questions and I was struggling. I, I thought, first of all, I'd probably give him a big slap. Um, <laughs> and, and, then I'd, uh, and then I'd give him a big hug. And, uh, and, then, and then I'd hand him a book of poems. You know, we've, uh, you and I, we've, we've read through a bit of, of, of poetry together, whether it's the work of David White or, or whether it's Rilke or uh, what was the guy? The Everything's Going to Be All Right, Derek Mann. In fact, I'd probably give him that poem. Everything is Going to Be All Right by Derek. Uh, is it Derek Mann? Mm-hmm. I'll include a link to that in, in the show notes. You absolutely, absolutely should. It is a, it is a beautiful, beautiful poem. And uh, I'd probably read that to my younger self. And, uh, and hopefully that would land well. Steve, it's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure uh, over a long period of time, but it's been a pleasure today. Thank you so much for sharing all of your insights and all of your learnings and, and in the transparent, honest way that you always do. Much appreciated. You're welcome. Thank you for the opportunity.
Take care. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Leadership Diet. We hope you enjoyed it. Head over to theleadershipdiet.com where you can subscribe to the podcast, to our blog, retrieve a whole range of resources that we talk about in each episode. And if you are visual, a bit like myself, there are a range of videos sitting in our YouTube channel that you might find helpful. If you're enjoying all this, a review on iTunes or Spotify would be much appreciated. See you next time.